welcome to episode 29 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your elegant and fanciful host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. I've got two more season three episodes for you. Episode five, The Guanarius Caper, and episode six, The Ransom. Now, I'm recording this at the end of August, so you're probably going to hear the cicadas in the background. I just can't get them to be quiet during a recording. I can't get anything to be quiet during a recording, so please enjoy the backup singers that are my cicadas. Also, I'm going to go ahead and apologize for all of the traffic. I have all the windows closed in the box room where I'm recording, and yeah, you can still hear the cicadas, and for whatever reason, the truck traffic is really heavy today. I live not too far from a state highway. It's literally just on the other side of the block. Anyway, let's go to Hawaii. You just cannot understand how a senseless thing like this could happen. Mr. McGarrett, if you're certain it was the car and not the Granarius the thief was after, I have a suggestion to make. That we make a public appeal for the return of the violin. I'm prepared to offer a substantial reward, no questions asked, if the violin is returned. No, absolutely not. Why not, Mr. McGarrett? I'm Joseph Sapa. Just made a similar suggestion to our embassy in Washington. Why are you opposed? Because there's a possibility that whoever stole Mr. Gifford's car may not know the violin is in the trunk. Therefore, they don't know the value. But if they strip the car, won't they look in the trunk? Spare tire is one of the main things they go for. True. But if they don't know the value of it, they may leave it, figuring it isn't worthwhile bothering with. But if the thief knows, he'll receive a reward. Mr. Rostov, if you make a public appeal and they find out that you have a priceless Guinarius, I don't know what your chances are of ever getting your violin back. Now, I ask you, please, give me your assurance that you'll keep this quiet. I'm afraid such an assurance can come only our embassy in Washington. And now, if you'll excuse us, Mr. Rostov and I will return to our hotel. One moment, Sarpa. My Guarnarius is one of only a very few left in the world. I call it mine, but I do not think of it as such. In a sense, it belongs to everyone who loves music. It would be their loss as well. Find it, Mr. McGarrett. Bring it back. That is all that matters. Season 3, Episode 5, The Guarnarius Caper. Air date, October 14th, 1970. Directed by Anton Leder. This is his first of three. And written by Ken Pettis. This is his second of eight. While violinist Dmitry Rostov gives a concert to a select group of people, a couple of all-around thieves, Hutch and Deke, rip off a purse from a lady. After the concert, Rostov declines a cigar-smoking man's offer to buy the priceless Guanarius violin he owns. Meanwhile, Hutch and Deke spot a prime garage to steal a car from and head inside. There, they watch as Rostov's Russian State Department handler, Joseph Sarpa, puts the violin in the trunk of a car and then leaves. Hutch and Deke then make the fateful decision to steal the car. Given that Rostov is in the U.S. on a cultural exchange program organized between the two Cold War countries, Five-O is called in. Steve quickly determines that the car was most likely stolen to be stripped, and the thieves have no idea the value of the violin. Host Jared Gifford suggests making a plea for the return of the violin, but Steve says no. If the thieves have no idea of the value, then they're more likely to get the violin back. 
Sarpa challenges Steve on this, saying he'll have to get approval from the embassy. This unfortunate incident very quickly becomes a pissing contest between two countries. Sarpa sees this as an opportunity to condemn the U.S. for allowing this to happen, and the U.S. State Department sees this as an opportunity for Russia to embarrass America. Good luck getting anything done, Steve. Deke and Hutch are joined by their friend Tojo in the stripping of Gifford's car. Deke finds the violin in the trunk. Thinking it unimportant, they start a game of baseball with Hutch using it as a bat before the game is broken up by a police helicopter. It's Chin looking for the thieves. The Associated Press has a story about the stolen violin thanks to a leak from the Russian embassy saying American fascists took the violin to insult Russia. Steve confronts Sarpa about the leak and points out that Sarpa left a priceless violin unattended in an unlocked car. He's not accusing Sarpa of anything, just merely pointing out that he can play this passive-aggressive game too. Steve gets the call that Chin found the car stripped, but there's no violin. Rostov is distressed, but Sarpa looks pleased. Tojo drops off Hutch and Deke, and they decide their best bet for some bonus cash is to sell the violin to an old blind violin teacher named Gino Mazzini. Even blind, Gino can tell that these two yahoos have brought him something special, and he pays them $15 for it. His suspicions are later confirmed with the help of a neighbor after he hears a broadcast on the radio about the missing violin and the reward for its safe return. Unfortunately, Hutch and Deke hear the same report. They go back to Gino's and end up killing him before taking off with the violin. Neighbor Luana recounts what happened, recalling that she was harassed in the hallway by Deacon Hutch just before Gino brought her the violin to look at. Chin takes her to headquarters to look at the mug books. Meanwhile, Hutch, Deke, and Tojo make their play. Steve warns Sarpa about going through with it. They killed once, they'll do it again. But Sarpa insists and says that Steve won't stop him. And the governor won't let Steve stop him either. He wants no surveillance on Sarpa and wants 5-0 nowhere near the exchange. The governor also tells Steve that if anything happens to the violin, it'll be Steve's fault. Damned if you do, damned if you don't, Steve decides to do. So this is one of those classic Cold War episodes that highlights the passive-aggressive PR battles that would take place between Cold War countries. And if you're a young person and you don't know what the Cold War is, first of all, do your parents know you're listening? Or is listening to podcasts about television shows that went off the air decades before you were born your dirty little secret? Anyway, as I was saying, if you don't know what the Cold War is, it is basically a passive-aggressive tension war between countries that lasted from about 1946 to about 1991. It was highlighted by an arms race and nuclear race because we were gathering arms. Russia was gathering arms. We were making nuclear warheads, so were they. And it was also very much a propaganda war in that Russia was working overtime to make the Americans look incompetent and decadent and stupid and slow. And the American press was very much making Russia look austere and authoritarian and letting their people starve and repressing them horribly. Which isn't to say that there wasn't some truth to both sides of the PR happening, but it was very much so exaggerated for political purposes. But they did do these cultural exchanges. These actually did happen throughout the Cold War. And they were presented as a way for the countries to sort of ease tensions between the countries. 
look at us being cooperative and sharing our culture and sharing our art and sharing our music, but they were really just dick measuring contests with oils and violins. There's a book that I read that I recommend. It's called Art Curious. It's by Jennifer Dassel. I hope I pronounced her last name right. Probably didn't. Sorry, Jennifer. She's an art historian, and she actually talks a little bit about this sort of thing in one of the stories she tells. And she also covers other artworks and artists like Vincent van Gogh and Norman Rockwell and stuff. It's very interesting. I highly recommend it. So anyway, this is a cultural exchange. Rostov is a guest. Sarpas, his handler. And Rostov is very much so that I am an artist. I am a musician. And though he owns the Guanerius violin, he sees it as belonging to the world because it is priceless. So you have his handler, uh, Sarpa, choosing to use this incident to embarrass the United States. And Rostov, on the other hand, is kind of fighting him on that a little bit, as much as he can because he just wants the violin back so he can music. Yes, I spoke to Bulgarov personally. The embassy has been instructed to frame a note to the United States government deploring the loss of the Guarnerius. You are to telephone Mr. Gifford to inform him you're canceling the concert tomorrow evening. No. No. I will not be party to turning this unfortunate business into an ugly political issue. Very well, Rostov. I cannot force you to cancel the concert, but I caution you to be prepared to explain your lack of cooperation when we return home. That was the other common thing about the United States propaganda against Russia at the time. And as I said, there is some truth to it that if you didn't do what the government wanted, they would disappear you. You would end up in uh, a gulag in Siberia, probably, or worse. So there is that threat there, and that's what kind of keeps Rostov in line. He's not a very courageous character in that sense. He knows he's, he's between a rock and a hard place, and so is Steve, because the State Department is also hampering Steve, because they're trying to prevent the country being embarrassed by this incident. And it's funny because everybody's all about this violin, and Steve's just like, if you would just shut up and listen to me, I will let you know how this works. The thieves stole a car. You can't go anywhere on an island with a car. They stole it to strip it. This is nothing to do with the violin. A pro did this. If they wanted the violin, they would have just popped the trunk and taken the violin. They took the whole car. That's their objective. And Steve is actually being very practical about this. If we just look for the car, if we go for the car, don't mention the violin. The odds of getting this violin back are actually pretty high. The thieves won't have any use for the Guanarius. But everybody is so concerned, everybody else I should say, is so concerned about having their ass hanging out that they're in his way. They're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable of this particular situation. And this is also a great example of the continuation that we have through this series of Steve saying, don't do the thing, and then the people do the thing, and it goes wrong and he has to fix it. So in this case, he's saying, do not put out a reward offer for this violin. Don't draw attention to it, and we'll have a better chance of getting it back. So later in the episode, what happens is that the embassy goes to go ahead to put out the reward offer, and that's what gets Gino killed. And that's what leads us to our climax and confrontation at the end of the episode. 
So Steve and Fibo actually go at this case and treat this case like it is a stolen car case, a plain old stolen car case without the political complications with it. And they do what they do. They have Chin up in the helicopter looking for the stolen car, looking for places where pros would be comfortable to strip the car, and that's how they find it. When they find the car, they have Jay Fong go over it with a fine-tuned comb, looking for any forensic evidence that might lead them to these thieves. So he really is keeping calm throughout this whole thing up until the point when Gino is killed. Then his mode switches. Steve no longer cares about the violin so much as he, obviously he still wants to get the violin back and avoid any political problems, but a man's been killed. That turns the case for him. Now it's very much so not so much nabbing the thieves, I want to nab the killers. And he never loses sight of that. So he ends up running into that wall of when Sarpa goes behind his back and has Gifford put up the money for the reward for the return of the violin, which Steve expressly said, don't do this, it'll be bad. And Sarpa is like, I'm going to make sure that you do not interfere with this. And the governor doubles down on that, which is great because he makes it very, very clear that Fivo is not to be involved. They're not to have surveillance on Sarpa. They're not to supervise the ransom drop. They're not supposed to be anywhere near the ransom drop. And yet, the governor makes it very clear that if this goes badly, it's going to be Steve's fault. I'm guessing that the reason why he is saying this is that if Steve and Fivo had found the violin prior to this, what they're saying as being a necessity to get the violin back, like their last ditch effort because 5 couldn't come through. If anything happens during this ransom drop, it's going to be Steve's fault because he didn't do his job prior to that, which he didn't exactly have a lot of help doing his job prior to this because everybody is having him tow a very specific line so he doesn't start World War III. So it's kind of ridiculous and frustrating. And what's great about it is it does that thing where Steve is usually in the context of television policing which frequently crosses real-world lines that real-world police frequently trample all over. For the most part, Steve doesn't cross those very clear, distinct lines like going against the governor's wishes, or there's just certain codes that he won't break. This is one of those where he's being specifically told to stand down, and he's just like, absolutely not. I love Renegade Steve. Renegade Steve still gets things done, but... He does it with a suit jacket off. Well, at least, you know, in the office. Not out in public. He, he has a, an image to uphold. Anyway, it's that classic nothing gets done until the guys pull off the case type deal. And at this point, Steve is very much all about not only solving Gino's murder, but possibly preventing another one because he knows this ransom drop is not a good idea. So I'll be honest with you. The actual political aspect of this episode, while it serves as a great frustrator for Steve and a complicator for the case, I really don't care about it that much. It just isn't as interesting. I mean, Rostov is very sympathetic and you're obviously rooting for Steve because you don't want him to fail. You don't want something bad to happen to this violin because like I said, Rostov is very sympathetic. You don't dislike him. And if something happens to the violin, that's a win for Sarpa because he's going to blow this up and make everybody look bad. And he's very smug and punchable 
So you obviously don't want anything bad to happen to the violin. So when you have that scene where Hutch, Deke, and Tojo are playing baseball with the Renarius, it actually is really nerve-wracking. So even if you don't care about the political implications of the episode, or if that part of the episode just doesn't interest you like it does me, you're still going to find yourself holding your breath when they're pitching bottles at this violin. And I think part of that is because Sarpa is a pretty standard Russian State Department type guy. From the minute you see him, you know he has ulterior motives. Then you have Rostov, who is the brilliant musician who just wants to create music and has no interest in the politics. They're played by Albert Paulson and Ed Flanders, respectively, and we've seen them both prior to this. And they do great with the characters. A big part of the reason why Sarpa is so punchable is because Albert Paulson's really good at that, at that, at that smugness. And the reason why you sympathize with Rostov is because Ed Flanders is so good at making him a sympathetic character. However, the real personality of this episode lies with Hutch and Deke. And they're played by Anthony James and Kenneth O'Brien, respectively. And when we first meet them, they start off as kind of offbeat thieves operating on their own level. They're a little zany and they love their work. So we watch them going down the sidewalk looking for a mark. They spot a, a lady who's distracted getting in her car after shopping. They snatch her purse and they're like giddy little children when they're running away. So they find a safe spot to rifle her purse, take her money, and then they move on to their next score. So they're going down the sidewalk with Deke riding piggyback on Hutch and they're pretending like they're right, walking on a tightrope it looks like and they end up pushing a couple out of the way. So they're obviously a, a bit goofy but just that little action is there's a little a little bit something darker to them. You can see that. When they are crossing the entrance of this parking garage a guy pulls out and nearly hits him because they're not paying attention and Deke jumps on the hood of his car and yells at him, sticks his tongue out and has a little freak out at him. And that's when they decide to go in because that car is really expensive. So they decided to go in the garage and steal it and Hutch pulls out the ignition jumpers or whatever it is. It's some kind of a pro car thief tool to start the car without keys, without hot wiring it. At least as I understand it because I've never professionally stolen a car before so I can't verify. Anyway... We see them get the car. We see them start stripping the car. They're having a really great time. When Tojo shows up, he gets in on it. Tojo is kind of like a third wheel. You can tell that Hutch and Deke are besties, and Tojo's just part of their their gang. They're, he's they, he does he's not operating on the same level as Hutch and Deke in a lot of ways. But they scatter once Chin Ho shows up in the helicopter. And then they decide to go try to sell the violin to Gino Mazzini, and they keep calling him Pop. And that's when things start to get a little darker. Oh, how about it, Pop? How about it? 20 bucks, Pop? Got yourself a brand new fiddle. And you sure could use one, man. <laughs> what have you been doing with this? Hammer and nails? <laughs> Come on, Pop, man. What's it going to be? Yes or no? Come on.
this. Hey, look. You want it, okay. You don't want it, that's okay too, man. But we gotta split, so you make up your mind. I don't have $20. Oh, you are such a downer, Pop. I can give you $15. You sold to the man with a flat wallet for 15 bucks. Now, come on, make with the bread. Make with the bread. For the most part, they're just wanting to sell this violin and get out of there. They want to get as much as they can for it. They think 15 bucks is a score. But when Gino asks about where they got it from, there's that immediate switch. I mean, you have Hutch kind of hassle him, like, come on, make your mind. But then when he asks where they got it, there's that immediate switch and things get a little more sinister. The tone changes. When they get their money and they leave and they harass Luana in the hallway, that's got a little more of a predatory feel. So when they're hanging out on the beach and they hear the report that this violin is missing, they know what they're going to do and they go right back for Gino. We know that they're going to rob him, definitely. And Gino knows that because Gino hears the report. He already knew that he had something special there. You could see on the wall there's a sign that he used to be a concert violinist. So he knows what he has and gets the verification by taking it across the hallway to Luana. And Luana looks in it and she sees like a symbol or a label or something inside and confirms it. So he's calling the police. Poor Gino in such a hurry to call the police to return this because he really would like to keep it. But he knows better. He leaves his door open and he's trying to call the police and Hutch and Dee come in and cut the line. They silently take this violin from him and stab him to death in the process. Which kind of has you thinking, he's blind. You could have taken it and he doesn't know what you look like. He only knows your names. Maybe they wouldn't be able to find you. You're, you're trying to justify them not killing him, but they do. And it's set up, so it's kind of logical that they're not taking any chances. And it makes sense for those two characters that even though when we first saw them, saw them, we thought they were a couple of goose and they get progressively more threatening throughout the episode. So it kind of makes sense that they do it, but you still hate to see it. Also, Hutch stabs Gino in the back and he falls. There's absolutely no blood on his back. But then he makes the point of wiping the knife off on Gino's shirt and the blood looks like blackberry jam. I will never not love 70s gore effects on television. (laughs) Anyway, that little detail aside, this actually kind of, in a way, breaks the case for them because they talk to Luana, the neighbor, and she recalls Hutchin decaressing her in the hallway prior to Gino being murdered. And then Chin takes her down to headquarters and she looks through the mug books. And this illustrates a very interesting issue with eyewitness identification because she's going through the mug books and she pauses at one picture but then continues on and Chin catches it. And so she goes through all of the mug books. He goes, there was one picture that you hesitated at. Can we look at it again? And it is a picture of Deke, but it's a picture of Deke with short hair and clean shaven. So she recognizes him, but she doesn't. And that is an issue with eyewitness testimony it's about 50 50 on the accuracy mugshot lineups are hard i've actually had to do one when i worked at a credit union because someone passed a bad check and they did it through the drive-thru and i was working drive-thru that day and so i had to go in and look at a mugshot lineup and the thing is i actually recognized them i picked them out but in my head i'm going 
do I recognize this person because that's the person that I saw that day or am I recognizing that person because I've just seen them before? It turns out I was recognizing them because that was the person that day. But yeah, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing. So it's a good thing for us that Chin caught her hesitation because that gave them a lead that they needed to hopefully get Gino's killers. Because that's the other thing too. It seems like Steve and Five-O are the only ones interested in getting justice for poor Gino. Because Scarpa's like, gee, that's a shame. This probably wouldn't happen if you didn't have such a violent country here. And the governor is like, well, the killers can get away if it means that the United States won't look like incompetent boobs. So, okie dokie, we're going to learn to live with that. And Steve will not live with that. He wants those guys. He wants them for the murder, not just the theft. And he does want to get the violin back. He wants it all. And because he's Steve, he's going to get it all. But the bottom line is that Steve isn't willing to let some violin, no matter how priceless, be worth more than a man's life. Because he's a hero, after all. So with the ransom in play, the ransom exchange in play, Steve goes to Rostov and puts pressure on Rostov. And Rostov finally picks a side and tells Steve about the ransom and the planned trade. So Steve and Five-O are able to set up surveillance. And it goes exactly as you would think it would, except for one twist. And also, that final confrontation is turned up to 11. You'll know it when you see it. Also turned up to 11 is this guest cast. So let's take a real quick look at him. As I said, Joseph Sarpa was played by Albert Paulson. This is his second of four episodes. We also saw him in Just Lucky, I guess. Hutch, as I said, was played by Anthony James. He was in several episodes of Gunsmoke, but four of those episodes he played Albert Moses, a member of a conniving family of hill folk. In a couple of episodes, his brother Roland was played by Victor French. So you know that family was a good time. He also turned up in episodes of The Big Valley, Bonanza, Ironside, Search, The Streets of San Francisco, The Rookies, Police Story, SWAT, Charlie's Angels, Holmes and Yo-Yo, Starsky and Hutch, Man from Atlantis, BJ and the Bear, Ten Speed and Brown Shoe, WizKids, V, Hunter, The A-Team, Sledgehammer, Simon and Simon, Star Trek The Next Generation, Beauty and the Beast, and Father Dowling. So I remember him best from a small role he had in Naked Gun two and a half because the scene where he's singing a memories duet with Priscilla Presley while she's in the shower lives rent free in my head. But he also appeared in the movies Unforgiven, Mortuary Academy, Nightmares, Blue Thunder, Soggy Bottom USA, Ravagers, Returned from Witch Mountain, Burnt Offerings, High Plains Drifter, Tick, 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 and In the Heat of the Night. And he was in the TV movies... Prescription Murder, which was the Columbo pilot, Company of Killers, Ransom for Alice, Victory at Entebbe, and Rascals and Robbers, The Secret Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. Deke DeCoven was played by Kenneth O'Brien. This is his first of two episodes. He also turned up in episodes of Adam 12, Get Christy Love, Kung Fu, Ironside, Mannix, Police Story, Streets of San Francisco, Kojak, The Bionic Woman, David Cassidy, Man Undercover, which I really need to find. Lou Grant, Buck Rogers, The Dukes of Hazard, Cagney and Lacey, Hill Street Blues, and The Love Boat. He also appeared in the movies Airplane 2, Some Kind of Hero, The Idol Maker, The Sting, and Scream, Blackula Scream. And he was in the TV movie The Executioner's Song. 
Dimitri Rostov was played by Ed Flanders. This is his fourth of seven episodes. He was also in Uptight and the two-parter Three Dead Cows at Makapu'u. Tojo was played by Gary Ava. This is his second of five episodes. We also saw him in 40 Feet High and It Kills. Gino Mazzini was played by Wright Esser. This is his fifth of ten episodes. Jared Gifford was played by Larry Ronson. This is his second of two episodes. He was also in Cry Lie. Luana was played by Susan Park. She was billed as Susan Stewart at the time. This is her first of five episodes. She also turned up in episodes of Jake and the Fat Man, the 2010 Hawaii Five-O, and my favorite first season episode of the 2018 Magnum P.I. Babbitt was played by Jim Demarest. This is his third of seven episodes. He was also in Pray, Love, Remember, Pray, Love, Remember, and All the King's Horses. The Taxi Driver was played by Lippy Espinda. This is his first of 11 episodes. He was also in episodes of The Brady Bunch. He also appeared in the movies Inferno and Paradise, and he is my brother. Our director is Anton Leder. In addition to the three episodes of Hawaii Five-O, he also did three episodes of Man Behind the Badge, five episodes of Damon Runyon Theater, eight episodes of Celebrity Playhouse, three episodes of Cavalcade of America, 15 episodes of Ford Television Theater, four episodes of Wire Service, 14 episodes of The Adventures of Jim Bowie, three episodes of Perry Mason, five episodes of Bold Venture, four episodes of Sea Hunt, five episodes of The Brothers Brannigan, two episodes of The Twilight Zone, five episodes of Zero One, four episodes of Rawhide, six episodes of Gillian's Island, three episodes of Tarzan, eight episodes of Ironside, and 14 episodes of The Virginian. He also has directing credits for the movies The Cockeyed Cowboys of Calico County, don't try to say that one five times fast. And Children of the Dam. And that is the Quinarius Caper. Even though I'm not a big fan of the political, the more political episodes, I tend to find them kind of boring. I still really enjoyed this episode. A lot of that credit goes to the guest cast, particularly Anthony James and Kenneth O'Brien as Hutch and Deke. Like I said, they are interesting guys operating on their own level. And they start out apparently harmless and get more sinister. So it's really kind of fascinating to watch them go along. And as I mentioned, Albert Paulson as Sarpa, totally punchable and smug. Ed Flanders as Rostov, you do feel bad for him. And it is always interesting to see Steve stuck in a situation that he has minimal control over. You know Steve and Five-O are going to get the job done and they're going to get the bad guys. But when you put them in a position like that, it's always great to watch them get the job done. It's definitely worth a watch. Steve, where are you going? I'll let you know after I've been there. No use all of us getting scalped. Mr. Blake, we received unofficial notification from Honolulu Savings and Trust that you withdrew $250,000 in cash this morning. They had no right to disclose that information. The money was paid in tens and twenties, unmarked, unconsecutively numbered at your request. How I conduct my business transactions doesn't require the approval of the police, so if you'll excuse me. Things like this add up to only one thing. Ransom money. Ransom? For what? I still don't understand. You returned to Honolulu two weeks ago, Mr. Blake. You and your son. Your son here now? Look here, Mr. McGarrett. I didn't ask you to come here, but I'm asking you to leave now. 
Your son was kidnapped, wasn't he? That's ridiculous. Well, should we call him? He's not here. Kidnapping is a crime, whether you report it or not. I asked you both to leave. I'm asking you again. Mr. Blake, please, don't try to do this yourself. You can't handle it. Why not? I've handled bigger deals before. $250,000 means nothing to me when it comes to Timmy. This is not a business deal. I'm warning you, Mr. McGarrett. I'm handling this myself. If anything goes wrong, if you interfere and harm comes to Timmy, I'll hold you personally responsible. Episode 6, The Ransom, air date October 21st, 1970, directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is his fifth of 36, and written by Gerald Ludwig. This is his third of 12, and Eric Beravisi. This is his second of 12. Obi, Roy, and Earl break into the estate of Nelson Blake and kidnap his sleeping son, Timmy, leaving behind a ransom note on his pillow. Five-O is alerted to the kidnapping by the bank after Blake withdraws a considerable amount of money in specific denominations, all unmarked and non-sequential. Blake denies that anything has happened to Timmy until Steve backs him into a corner and he has no choice but to admit it. However, Blake insists that Five-O stay out of it because he doesn't want to risk Timmy being hurt. Obi takes a proof-of-life photo of a blindfolded Timmy and then Roy puts him to bed. Obi sends Earl off on the errand of delivering the picture and the instructions. Steve isn't a big fan of not involving himself in kidnapping plots and ransom exchanges, so he has Chin staking out the estate, and there's a tap on Blake's phone. They listen in as Earl plays a recorded tape, directing Blake to go to the Sea Life Park. Steve acknowledges that doing a ransom exchange in a busy place is the work of prose. Meanwhile, Earl then places an envelope addressed to Blake at an information kiosk while the girl working there has her back turned. After Earl feeds Timmy, he and Roy go back to the Sea Life Park where Steve and Five-O are staked out without Blake's knowledge. Chin follows Blake around the park while Kono stays near the entrance and Steve and Danny observe from afar. The kiosk girl gives Blake his envelope, which contains the proof-of-life picture and instructions that tell him to go to the Whaler's Cove. Naturally, Chin goes too, and ends up sitting near Blake at a dolphin show, unaware that Roy is sitting nearby too. Earl calls the information kiosk, saying it's an emergency call for Blake, who is then paged. He goes to find a phone nearby. Earl mimics the earlier recording and tells Blake to leave the briefcase of money by the phone and walk away. He does, but a good Samaritan attempts to return the case to him. In Blake's desperate insistence that he leave the case where it is, the case comes open, the money spilling out. The ransom drop is ruined. While everyone else is attracted to the money scene, Kono notices Roy rushing for the exit and stops him as he tries to get into a van. Unfortunately, Earl gets the drop on Kono. They chuck him in the van and split. Blake is understandably upset, yet less understandably, he blames Five-O for the botched ransom drop even though he was the one who biffed it, which Steve helpfully points out. Blake has no choice but to cooperate now. Meanwhile, Roy explains what happened to Obi, who was less than pleased. He blames Earl and Roy for the failure and for panicking and kidnapping a cop, but Roy points out that this was all Obi's plot. He was the one who scouted Blake and was certain that he would involve the cops. Obi insists that he had everything figured right, except for McGarrett. Though cuffed, Kono manages to untie Timmy. He scopes out the room they're in looking for an exit. They're in a bunker, and the only other option besides the door and a covered window is a graded skylight that leads to ground level. Kono convinces Timmy to climb up on his shoulders to reach the skylight. 
Timmy is hesitant, but eventually does so, making his escape. Unfortunately, Kono pays for it. Roy hits him a couple of times, but even handcuffed, Kono fights back until Roy gets the best of him. While a delivery driver finds an exhausted Timmy sleeping on the side of the road, Earl and Roy panic over the boy's escape. Obi, however, remains cool. He's got a new plan. They blindfold Kono and bring him out for a proof-of-life picture. Five-O is fretting over Kono when they get the call that Timmy has been found. After a joyful reunion between father and son, Blake offers to help Steve however he can. How fortunate, because the kidnappers call and tell them the deal is still on. The money or Kono dies. Now, the synopsis I have at the beginning of the episodes, they typically cover about the first 30 to 35 minutes of what is usually around a 50-minute-ish episode. Because that's usually where the next complication or twist comes in right before the climax. However, in this episode, this synopsis only covers about the first 20 minutes of the episode. Because this sucker is intense and it moves. There's a lot that happens, but it is real quick to go. So the twist of Kono being kidnapped actually happens pretty early in the episode. As well as Timmy making his escape. And it is a very classic child kidnapping when you think of those kidnappings that you see on TV. They break into a house at night, they chloroform the kid while he's sleeping, and leave a note on his pillow, and it's the classic cut-out letters from magazines glued to a page kind of note. But I also love that the initial kidnapping isn't reported by Blake. It was played by Lloyd Goff, who was Mike Axford on The Green Hornet. So you can hear Dan and I talking about that a lot over on Eventually Super Train when we covered The Green Hornet. We loved Mike Axford so much. And I love Lloyd Goff. But it's really weird to see him as the father of like a 10-year-old because he is a much older gentleman. I guess this was a late-in-life baby, but whatever. So it's reported by the bank to Five O that Blake has withdrawn this money in very specific denominations, non-sequential bills, non-marked money all of the hallmarks of a kidnapping ransom. And so Five-O of course goes to see Blake and he denies everything. He absolutely will not admit that Timmy's been kidnapped. And so what's interesting about that is obviously because this is Steve, this is Five-O, they're gonna take it upon themselves to do the right thing and help Blake out because they know how ransom and kidnappings go. Typically, once the kidnappers get the ransom, the victim is murdered. And they definitely don't wanna see that happen to a little kid. Now, the best part is that the right thing involves my favorite thing, which is undercover Aloha shirts. I love it when they go undercover and wear really ugly Aloha shirts. It is the hallmark of the series. It makes me happy. I live for it. So Chin and Steve's Aloha shirts are particularly fetching. Chin is wearing this magnificent green one. Steve has a lovely red one. Konos is rather subdued, which is fitting, given what happens later in the episode. And Dano went with a polo shirt, which is that's absolutely disappointing. You had one job, Dano. Anyway, so the whole ransom drop is actually pretty clever because they are doing it in a very public place. So Earl plays the tape with an altered voice to give Blake the first bit of instructions, which tells him to go to Sea Life Park. And of course, Five-O listens in on the phone tap. Everybody ends up at the Sea Life Park watching the dolphins. Then we get Earl doing the second call, and Earl mimics the voice on the recording. So he doesn't have a second recording. He's just mimicking it, and he is saying what Obi has told him to say, which is that he needs to leave the case by the phone, which the phone is like, it's not like a typical phone booth. It's kind of like on a pedestal, 
like in the middle of nowhere, I'm guessing that if you are of a certain age, you will recall that places like that did have phones scattered throughout because we didn't have cell phones. So it was common that people would call where they knew you were at and have you paged to come to the phone because reasons and almost always in an emergency. Anyway, the, the phone's like on this pedestal and he sets the case next to the pedestal, starts to walk away as the group is leaving Dolphin's Cove or Whaler's Cove from watching the Dolphin show. And a gentleman in a really fabulous, like totally hideous Aloha shirt stops him and says, Ho, oh, hey, isn't this your case? And of course, Blake freaks out and the case ends up popping open and the Good Samaritan totally ruins the ransom drop. So that was a nice twist on how that worked out that some complication was going to have to come up with this ransom drop because it's so early in the episode and to have it be this really nice guy just trying to help out and ruining things was, was kind of a nice twist and it will come back into play later. But what's great about following Blake through the park because obviously we're looking for our guys. So we're, Jin Ho is basically in the same group that Blake is. So he's following the most closely. We have Kono by the entrance, keeping an eye on things. And Steven and Danny are around from afar because Blake knows what they look like. So they're keeping their distance, but keeping an eye on things. Meanwhile, we also know what Roy and Earl look like. So we're also keeping an eye out for them. And we see at one point, Earl walk right past Kono. Well, Earl doesn't know what Kono looks like and Kono doesn't know what Earl looks like. So it's kind of frustrating to watch him walk past him like, hello, one of the bad guys. And something similar happens at the Whaler's Cove because Blake goes and sits down and it's, it's bowl seating. So the top bleacher is level with the ground and then it goes down into the bowl where the pool is, where the dolphins are. So you see Blake sit up close to the top. You see Chin Ho sit not too far from him. And on his other side, you see Roy sit not too far from him. So you have the cops, the kidnappers, and the victim all together. And Chin does not know Roy, and Roy does not know Chin. And Blake does not know Chin, and Blake does not know Roy. But both Chin and Roy know Blake. So it's just really kind of interesting to watch it play out like that. I just really liked that little detail of them all being in the same place and not realizing it. After Earl walks past Kono and doesn't realize it, and then we have the incident with the money coming open and everybody running over to the money, Roy runs for the entrance. Kono recognizes that as suspicious and catches him. And he catches him at the van, which he catches him, gun out, tells him to put his hands up as he's trying to get in the back or the side of the van. I think it's the side of the van. For whatever reason, Kono doesn't seem to think that there might be somebody else in that van because Earl comes around and gets the drop on Kono. And they knock him out and throw him in the van. So I don't know why he didn't think that there might be someone else in the van. Maybe he was just caught up in the moment. Maybe he just figured that everybody would surrender when they saw this big Hawaiian man coming at them. Which I would. So it's logical. But yeah, it, it turns out that that was his big mistake. And it ends up getting him kidnapped. So now the ransom drop is blown. And we are missing Kono. Obviously, 5 has to go back to Blake, and Blake blames 5 for blowing the ransom drop when 5 didn't have anything to do with it, and it was all him, and Steve happily points that out. Now look where we are, McGarrett. They still have my son and one of your cops. If you hadn't interfered... The results would have been exactly the same. No one could have anticipated what happened. And as far as you're concerned, nothing has changed. They still have your son, they still want the money. Now, we need your complete cooperation if you ever want to see your boy alive again. 
So it's really kind of funny that they did kind of what Blake said. They were supervising from a distance and Blake didn't realize it, but he will still blame them instead of blaming himself or actually blaming just the absolute cruelty of fate to have this good Samaritan interrupt the drop and, and ruin things. But as Steve points out, the situation hasn't changed. The kidnappers still have Timmy. The kidnappers will still want the money. They just now also have Kono. And Kono, meanwhile, is playing the hero. So they put Kono in the room with Timmy. Timmy is still tied up and he's still blindfolded. Kono is not. Kono's handcuffed. They used his own handcuffs on him. Kinky. And manages to untie Timmy. And Timmy takes his blindfold off. And it really is a very sweet scene because he gets Timmy loose. He tells him to be quiet, that he's a friend and has a look around the room. Now, where they're being held, when it comes to Hawaii, a lot of architecture is built into the hillside. So you have these weird like step houses. This is more like an outpost or a bunker of some kind. Like it's old and had been used for something and then was abandoned. So it has like towards the top of this hill, it goes, it has this real long staircase that goes up the side of the hill. And it's got like the main part of this building up on top, but it also has like halfway up the staircase, there's a door, there's like a step carved out into the hill and there's a door that you can get in. And that's the door that Obi and Roy and Earl are using. And from that room, it leads off to another room where Kono and Timmy are being held. So in that room, there's a similar like door or window to the outside but it's all covered over and blocked off. And then there's a, like a grate that leads to ground level. So when you go up the side of the hill, it will be even with that. And it's kind of like a skylight. I have no idea what this building was supposed to be or what it was, but hey, great on the scouting crew for finding it because it was fabulous. And it's really hard for me to, to describe. So you really need to watch the episode so you can get a handle on what I'm trying to explain. But Kono realizes that that's going to be the only way out. So he convinces Timmy to get up on his shoulders and they go up along the wall. So he has balance and he, Timmy stands up and he has to get on Kono's head to push the, the grate open and to be able to get out. So it's a real sweet scene that he kind of does a quick bonding with Timmy and helps him escape. And Timmy, of course, runs for it and he's found by a delivery driver and reunited with daddy. Oh, happy day. And what's interesting is, is that Blake does a really nice swerve here by saying that he'll help Steve however he can, because at first he thinks that Kono escaped too, but then Steve tells him, no, Kono helped Timmy escape, but he wasn't able to get away. And so Blake is like, I will do whatever I can to help Kono because he's the reason why I have my son back. And that includes paying the ransom. And I really like that because in the past, we've been dealing with millionaires who are like, well, I got mine. So good luck getting your guy back. But Blake is truly appreciative of everything that Kono did. The problem is, is that Steve is pretty certain that Kono will be killed once the ransom is delivered. So he wants to avoid paying ransom at all costs. So yes, he's willing to let Blake help in, in that respect, but that's his last ditch effort. And 5-0 does what they can to try to figure out who the kidnappers are. But there's not a whole lot of physical evidence. Timmy did, was blindfolded the whole time, doesn't really see anything. And when they take the tape that they had made of the first recorded instructions that they got from the wiretap, they alter it to restore it to the original voice, which is Obi's. 
because it's kind of like speeded up weird when you re- first hear it, but then they slow it down and alter it so it sounds like Obi again, but he's talking very slowly and bluntly and he does that to disguise his voice. And But they play it for Timmy and ask if he recognizes this voice. And he listens to it and he says that he doesn't. He goes, he, he would know the voices of the men that he heard, but that one doesn't sound familiar. And part of that, I think, is because Roy and Earl talked the most when Timmy was around. And Obi, I think, only said a couple of things. But what's interesting, though, is, and I'm not going to blame the kid for this. Um, maybe I'll blame the writers. But at one point, Timmy is within earshot when, I think it's Earl, calls Obi by his name. So you would have thought Timmy might have remembered that. But to be fair, he's 10 and traumatized. And so because they couldn't get Timmy to identify the voice and they, they couldn't get a voice match. I think they said they sent to the FBI and couldn't get a voice match. So Steve is going to have to go through with the ransom drop and just hope that they can find a way to get to Kono before they, he's killed. Now, the other interesting swerve here is that Obi doesn't want to kill Kono. We don't give the cop back. We have to. Now listen, this is not like the kid. You kill a cop and there's no turning back. McGarrett will forget about the money sooner or later, but you kill his boy and he is never going to forget that. Never. But he can tell him what we look like, me and Roy. Earl, do you realize how many people in the world look like you and Roy? You've got no criminal record. The time they find out what you look like will be, well, so far away it won't matter. So Earl seems to like go along with this because yeah, he doesn't really want to kill Kono either just for the mess factor, but he also doesn't want to go to jail. And the idea that we get this money because it's $250,000, we could be anywhere and McGarrett will forget about the money, but not if they kill Kono. Meanwhile, Roy, on the other hand, decides that since Kono saw Roy and Earl, it's really Roy and Earl's decision what they're going to do. And Roy says they're going to kill him. And because of the way the second ransom drop is set up, Roy and Earl are in position to keep guard over Kono, which at this point they've moved him. Where they end up being at is like a gas station for boats. So it's like this dock up here. I don't know the difference. I'm from a landlocked state. And they've kind of got him in this like storage box off the dock. So it's, it's a coffin looking box that's set in the water. And they open it up to check on him repeatedly. So it's like seeing Kono in a coffin. So here's bound and blindfolded Kono in a coffin. It's really upsetting. And I will go into that a little bit more in a minute. But they have their plans. Obi just doesn't realize that Roy and Earl have slightly changed their plans. But Obi is the one that's going to go pick up the money. And Earl and Roy stay behind to handle Kono. Roy is the one that makes the second ransom call to give instructions. And Steve jacks up his shit because Steve says, I want to talk to Kono. Now they've gotten two proof of life pictures. They, they got the first one just saying that, hey, we have Kono. The second one comes with instructions, which sends them to a phone booth and lets them know that Kono's still alive. Because the second proof of life picture, they have a newspaper with it, giving the date. So they know he's still alive. And so the second one sends them to a phone booth where Roy makes the call to Steve and Steve says, I want to talk to Kono. Well, the phone booth that Roy is at is where he can see Steve at, Steve and Blake, because Blake was instructed to bring the money. And it kind of jacks up Roy's shit because Obi's not there to tell him what to do. And this is not how it was supposed to go. So he negotiates that Blake still has to go to the cemetery where he's supposed to be dropping off the money. And he'll let Steve talk to Kono at the same time. So they agree to that. 
And the whole point of that is, so they go back and get Kono out of his box and put him on the phone to talk to Steve. And the whole point is so Steve can get a trace on the call. And Kono realizes this. And so to help make the phone call long enough so they can get an accurate trace, he doesn't speak until absolutely forced to. But if you've ever wanted to know where we got the term or how we got the term tracing a call, watch this episode. It's literal. The guy was literally tracing wires. It was absolutely fantastic to watch. Now, I will say this. This is a great episode. It's intense. There's a lot going on. The pace is really good. But it's a real rough one to watch because Kono gets the crap beat out of him. The thing is, is that we love Kono and we know Kono's going to be okay because obviously he was in the show for the rest of the season and then season four. So we know in our hearts that he's going to be okay. That's not a spoiler. But watching him go through the beatings that he receives because he, he gets the crap beat out of him after he lets Timmy loose and won't tell, won't say where Timmy is. And then when he, when Steve gets to talk to him on the phone and he's, and Kono resists speaking so they can effectively do the trace, he gets the crap kicked out of him again. He gets punched in the face. He gets hit with the phone until finally Roy puts the gun up to his chin and says, you're going to talk or this is going to be the last conversation you have. And so it's really hard to watch Kono because he's this big lovable guy. We love him. Just get the tar kicked out of him. And it, there's an interesting bit of acting by Zulu in this episode because as the episode progresses, Kono, who is a big dude, seems to be getting smaller the longer he's held, implying that he's being worn down. Because when we see him at the beginning, he's regular Kono. He's actually, when he's standing at the entrance, there's a kind of swagger in the way he's standing, leaning on this rock, watching things. It's this absolute projection of confidence. And even while bound in the room when he's fighting with Roy after he lets Timmy go, he's still, there's something very big about him. But when they bring him out for the proof of life picture, he looks a bit smaller. When you bring him out for the second proof of life picture, he looks even smaller. He looks small when he's in that storage box. By the time he talks to Steve on the phone, he's shrunk. It's heartbreaking to see that because we like Kono. We love Kono. He's a lovable goof and a hero and we love him. So it's really hard to watch. The one thing that's really nice that we get from all that, watching poor Kono be abused, is that the team loves him too. And they're blatant about it in a very subdued, subtle way. But it's just so obvious you can't deny it. Because when they get the first proof of life picture, Steve and Danny have a very visceral reaction to that. Steve is stunned. He is broken. He hands the picture to Danny and walks away because he's just so upset. Danny looks like he's going to be sick and he's blinking back tears. And then when Steve vows to get the guys, if they kill Kono, he's blinking back tears. So it's very quiet, but a very powerful scene. And again, Jack Lord does not get the credit he deserves for acting. And in this case, James MacArthur is not getting the credit he deserves for acting because you could see that they were absolutely devastated by what has happened with their friend. And this emotional intensity is not necessarily something that people associate with the series for some reason. They think action and high stakes and big cases and the typical cop show masculine stuff. But this is one of those examples of this team having a great love for each other and showing it. 
these are not just co-workers and it's not just Steve being the boss and his underlings. There is a great affection and tenderness between them, even if they don't always show it. And when they do show it, it's the timing of when they show it just creates a better impact. So the platonic love is very evident and it's something that a lot of shows still shy away from, specifically when it comes to men. They either no homo bro it or they favor opposite sex romantic love over it. So they place that higher and put more focus on that than they do the platonic love, particularly between same sexes. And it's pretty frustrating. So it's really nice to see that in a show like this in 1970. So yeah, even knowing that, of course, Kono is going to be rescued and be okay, it's still really tense and emotional to get to that point. And of course, before we get there, there is another Good Samaritan, and the rescue, it's a real gas. Our guest cast is a gas too. So let's take a quick look at him. Obi O'Brien was played by Andrew Duggan. This is his second of five episodes. We also saw him in the pilot, Cocoon. As I said, Nelson Blake was played by Lloyd Goff. Mike Axford on the Green Hornet. He also turned up in episodes of The Outer Limits, Ben Casey, Perry Mason, Gunsmoke, The Fugitive, The Invaders, Mannix, Minute Law, Longstreet, Banachek, Barnaby Jones, and Quincy. He appeared in the movies House Calls, The Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover, Earthquake, The Great White Hope, Madigan, The Scarf, Storm Warning, Sunset Boulevard, The Babe Ruth Story, and Black Bart. And he appeared in the TV movies Sandcastles, The Marcus Nelson Murders, It's Good to Be Alive, and Fun and Games. Roy was played by Ron Hayes. This is his first of two episodes. He was Garth Holden on Lassie, Ben Jones on The Rounders, Lincoln Vale on Everglades, and Hank Johnson on Dallas. He also turned up in episodes of Maverick, Wanted Dead or Alive, The Rifleman, Rawhide, Wagon Train, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Sea Hunt, The Outer Limits, Flipper, Ironside, The Invaders, Mod Squad, Beretta, Chips, and The A-Team. He appeared in the movies Death Wish 3, Zero to Sixty, Around the World Under the Sea, and Face of a Fugitive. And he was in the TV movies Four Against the Desert, Happily Ever After, and Dead Solid Perfect. Earl was played by Peter Bonners, probably best known as Dr. Jerry Robinson on the Bob Newhart show. That is why it was so weird to see him playing a bad guy in this episode. He was also Franklin Hart on the TV version of 9 to 5. And he was George Berenstein Flynn on Three Sisters. He also turned up in episodes of The Addams Family, That Girl, The Governor and J.J., Macmillan and Wife, Sanford and Son, Murder, She Wrote, Dinosaurs, Home Improvement, Kim Possible, Parks and Rec, and Melissa and Joey. He appeared in the movies Man on the Moon, Nobody's Perfect, Serial, Fuzz, and Catch-22. And he was in the TV movies How to Break Up a Happy Divorce, Circle of Violence, A Family Drama, Your Place or Mine, and Dad's Dog. Now, he actually has quite a few directing credits, including uh, The Bob Newhart Show, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Archie Bunker's Place, Suzanne Plichette is Maggie Briggs, ER, the 84 series with Elliot Gould, Alf, My Sister Sam, Wings, Murphy Brown, Friends, Home Improvement, The Hewleys, and Just Shoot Me. He also has directing credits for the movie Nobody's Perfect and Police Academy 6, which I loved as a kid. And he has the directing credits for the TV movies Love Natalie, Back Together, The Recovery Room, Sharing Richard, 
and The Elvira Show. Timmy was played by Jeffrey Thorpe. This is his third of four episodes. He also appeared in Pray, Love, Remember, Pray, Love, Remember, and The Devil and Mr. Frog, which he was also kidnapped. I'm starting to think he's typecast. Harris, the phone tracer, was played by Winston Char. This is his third of 18 episodes. He was also in the episodes 40 Feet High and It Kills and A Bullet from a Garret. The Ticket Girl was played by Leonel Anderson. This is her only credit. Kornfeld was played by William C. Mounts. This is his second of third episodes. He was also in And They Painted Daisies on His Coffin. And in an uncredited role, Douglas Mossman shows up yet again, playing an officer. And that is The Ransom. Really good episode. Very intense. Very emotionally intense. Like I said, it is so rough to see Kono go through this, but the emotional reactions from his team just kind of make it worth it. It's just such a good response. Also, you've got a lot of very pretty contemplative shots in this episode, as well as some really great lighting. Michael O'Hurley, his directing in this episode, I think was really good. I really enjoyed it. And I'm not smart enough to really comment on stuff like that. But in this case, it really struck me. So yeah, excellent episode. Highly recommend. It's brutal, but give it a watch. Not again. What do you mean? Another good Samaritan. That is episode 29 of Bookum Dano. Thank you so much for listening. It was an incredibly loud background noise episode between the cicadas, the birds, the trucks, the people in my house. Just absolutely noisy as hell. I'm so sorry about that. I need to soundproof my life. But anyway, two good episodes, both dealing with something being held for ransom and an interesting juxtaposition of what's considered valuable and the manipulations of that value. And you have the completely different reactions of people to what's being held. So obviously our team is going to be a little more upset that Kono is taken than a violin is taken, but the people that were responsible for the violin, only one of them seemed to be really upset about it. So interesting episodes to play back to back, but both enjoyable in their own ways. And I hope you enjoy them too. And I hope you enjoyed listening to me talk about them. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano and all of my podcasting ventures as well as my rerun junkie thoughts. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you want to hear about me professing my love for Kono in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So keep your priceless violins close and your big lovable Kanaka even closer. Until next time. Aloha!